Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Jolly. Before we begin some exciting news, we are taking part in Podcast Live, a new event bringing your favourite podcasts under one roof. Join us on Sunday, April the 7th in central London to book tickets. Go to podcastlive.com. And if you're a subscriber to my morning email, you can get a 10% discount using the code you can find there. Right, in-house plug over, down to this week. And instead of rounding up uh, Times columnists to tell us what they think is happening in Britain, I thought we'd take a slightly more international approach. So I've assembled three UK-based foreign correspondents from other European countries to help try to explain how we are being viewed elsewhere in Europe. And maybe together we'll all try to work out what on earth is going on with Brexit. So joining me, Tim DeWitt is UK and Ireland correspondent for Dutch public service broadcaster NOS. Katrin Pirrell is UK correspondent for German newspapers and Christina Marconi is an Italian journalist and they're all based in London. Welcome to you all. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Before we get down to the um, hugely interesting topic of uh, Brexit, let's start with just what does does being a forward correspondent, because we think of foreign correspondents being in sort of glamorous, far-flung places with, you know, better weather and, or, you know, war or whatever. What does, what does, Christina, start with you, what does... What does being a former correspondent in London involve? A lot of coverage of the royal family, which is a little bit like maybe the, like the exotic big bit is definitely the, the royal family. And then um, I think it's a little bit like being correspondent from, from the future, really. It is uh, not a country, but definitely a city which has a lot of uh, well new things going on, a lot of innovation. So it's, it's very exciting. And uh, I would say correspondent from the future as well because of what's happening now in terms of uh, relation with the European Union. So it is a very it, it is a very articulate and it's a very um, exciting kind of job which uh, brings us brings me definitely to write about culture, about fashion, 
Unfortunately, the political side is, of course, uh, taking the center stage at the moment. But I think as it's one of the best postal correspondent you can have. I mean, before that, I was in Brussels, uh, where uh, everything had to be seen through the, the European lens, in a way. Whereas from London, it's more um, international, it's more e exciting, it's more uh, diverse. And also, I have to mention, as an Italian correspondent, that we have a huge Italian community here, and a huge Italian community of people who are either like uh, they spend a year in London, they are planning to spend some years in London when they're looking for work. or, and, and that's a very interesting phenomenon to observe. And also it's very important to give these people the right information about what will happen, what the, the city is giving them, what the country is happening. I mean, what the country is, um, where it is going really, uh, in order for them to make plans. Katrina, is it a good posting for you, London? I absolutely love it. Um, but when I came here in 2014, everyone was like, ooh, that's almost a bit boring politically, you know? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you're right. Because there were like David Cameron, Nick Clegg, you know, at Miliband. They sort of, from the, from abroad, they sort of looked the same. They were the same. Well, that was also true here. That was, exactly. We thought they all looked the exactly. same. Exactly. And so, and like... At some point, I was like, oh, that's a bit of a shame. But of course, there's so many other things. And it's quirky stories. It's lighthearted stuff. And in Germany in particular, they love the Britishness. And, the, you know, I mean, I know that's very basic, but like they sort of love every story where there's a red bus involved or, you know, like this kind of very cliche sort of Britain. And, um, of course, the royals, hugely popular in Germany as well. But, of course, after, I don't know, I mean, Scottish referendum and, and general election and then, of course, the referendum, EU referendum, um, it's nowadays just Brexit, basically, or 95% <laughs> of um, what I do is Brexit. You're nodding as well, Tim. Yeah, I think it's even more than 95%. Is it possible? Yeah, almost. No, it's the same. Well, yeah. Megan is pregnant, to be fair. Well, yeah. No, but it, it, it is indeed. So it's 95% Brexit, then 5% yeah, of Megan is yeah. pregnant. That's, that's it. That is Britain here we go. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I moved here early 2015, so like four years ago, and I was in the same position as, as Catherine explained. Like, because the nice thing about being a foreign correspondent is you have the variety of all the stories coming towards you. You're very, uh, a general affairs kind of conversation journalist you know so it's from sports to culture to politics to and that's what the job involves and now it's just mainly politics ex only politics yeah so that presumably is the appeal of being a foreign correspondent you do get to do everything and you know and rather than getting totally bogged down in one one thing well I guess it's the problem is we're going around in circles if, if it was at least <laughs> a bit of a you know exciting political situation and it is exciting I don't want to play it down but of course I'm just a bit lost sometimes because what else to say you know and like of course for well, we, we, yeah we're, we're only too familiar with that on the podcast like how many more times could we go around the houses exactly and the problem is like of course British colleagues can go into detail for us I mean I still have to explain the basics all yeah. the time because in Germany you know they don't have it of course um on the cards well, all the time. I don't think anybody here really totally follows all the detail. Um, Christina, what happens then? Let's talk us through like your typical day. What is it you calling a news desk and saying, Theresa May is giving another Brexit statement and she's going to say the same thing as last time? <laughs> and they're like, no, we really don't want any more of that. Or are they calling you and saying, we can't get enough of Theresa May saying the same thing over and over again? 
I uh, try to send an email to all my newspapers every morning. Usually they will say in the morning, oh no, not another like day, day for <laughs> Theresa May. We are not going to cover this. This is too boring. Then um, given the Italian newspapers, they tend to close very late at night. Uh, by six in the afternoon, they will call me and say like, okay, this is very important. You have to write something. You have to write a story. On the Theresa May thing um, that they didn't want yeah, in the morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And also there is another thing, which is, it is a very intricate story. It's very complicated, which means that every time someone will write a children's version of Brexit, everyone will get very excited from Rome saying, oh, we have this story where Brexit is being delayed of two years. I mean, it's an official saying this in Brussels, very interesting, doesn't mean it will happen. But at least it's a clear headline. Yeah. So they like it because it's clear. It's much better than maybe, you know, on Wednesday we might have a motion. And this is very hard to explain. So, yeah, I would say like the, um, I start in the morning in a desert of uh, an interest and uh, have to wake up in the afternoon when everyone gets excited. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, you were nodding there as well. The difficulty is for every journalist in the UK at the moment is no one has a real clue of what will happen yeah. you know, in the future. And that's the question we probably all get every morning as well. I mean, my broadcaster sent me to this country to understand what's going to happen. <laughs> and then I have to explain to them every day, like, I'm, I'm not too sure, you know, like, for example, this weekend again, like, we were focusing a bit on will there be a, another meaningful vote this week? And then involves a lot of preparation because that means probably I have to, they will have to send some extra colleagues over, some extra camera crews, because that's something we need to cover quite big. And then on Sunday, again, Theresa May says, well, actually, I gave it a thought. And the next date is the 12th of March. Um, and yeah, who knows? Will it happen then? Or will it be definitely uh, will be, will be going down to the 28th of March? So that makes it really hard as a correspondent as well. Because the, the audience I, I work for, and Catherine uh, pointed to, to the, towards that already, is not as involved as the British are, obviously. Yeah. Because it, it, it won't affect them as much. So if it comes down all the time to, to a debate about the backstop, um, I mean, editors to me say, you can't use the word backstop. <laughs> you just can't use it because people... Well, turn it's that like TV on. You're going to talk for an hour about Brexit. You're not allowed to use the word backstop. Exactly, yeah. and it makes it really hard. So, and um, you have to explain it to to an audience which is interested because there's a lot at stake as well economically for, yeah. for the Netherlands, for example, and for, for other European countries as well. Of course, especially when it comes to No Deal and those kind of things. But you cannot go into the same level of detail as as British journalists are, are, are allowed to. Does it makes it the job as a foreign correspondent? I think pretty hard at the moment as well here. To agree, Katrine. Oh yes. <laughs> And on top of that, you also have this sort of different sentiment in, for example, I mean, I can only speak for Germany. They don't like Brexit at all. And they just can't believe why <laughs> Britain is doing this. And actually, you would, you would feel or you would see the same feelings in, um, like, in, you know, among my editors. Like they are always very sort of interested whenever there's a story about any poll which says, oh, you know, the British public is changing its mind. Yeah. And I always have to say, calm down, Brexit <laughs> is going to happen. So basically, I do think that was the main message in the past years. I tried to get across yeah. that Brexit is going to happen. And still today, <laughs> they're like, is there any chance the Brits could not leave? Because for them, it's just like they won't believe it. And it's not only about economical damage or anything. It's just like... 
you would you would find the same or like if you go to Germany and you talk to people they're always like why would you damage yourself so much like what's the point you know so and it's not only about economics it's also about that of course the Germans feel differently about the EU about the union you know about everything so what like I think part of our job was to explain why Brexit happened in the first place and that's It's an ongoing <laughs> challenge, I guess. I remember the day after the referendum in 2016, there was a story which was picked up in, in, uh, at my broadcast quite bigly. It was a petition signed by a lot of people straight away that they wanted to reverse the result, mm. right? So I think it was one million. I yeah, think yeah, it, yeah. It, it, was, it took to, off really quickly, yeah. yeah. So they thought, okay, well, this is a clear signal that <laughs> the country just doesn't want this. And, then you, and, and indeed, you, you just have to keep on explaining, like, this is not, um, this is going to happen, you know, a majority of the people voted for it. It's a, it's a democratic decision. I mean, whether you like it or not is, is, is a different matter. And do you have to be careful? I mean, are you uh, a German or a Dutch or Italian voice here? And so you sort of reflect you know so you end up basically just writing stories showing it's all a terrible idea or do you find that because you've been here for a few years you, you go a bit native and actually a development which is good for britain but possibly bad for the eu or other european countries do you know what I mean whose whose side are you on when you're sort well, of you're the bridge aren't you yeah. a bit yeah. you kind of are the link between those two countries in a yeah. way and to explain the british I mean, I don't want to say I, I can explain Britain or the British culture or the thinking. <laughs> we, I, I would not go that, that far. <laughs> But uh, of course, you have to see it through a German or Dutch or Italian sort of perspective and to explain it as well. Yeah. In Italy, as you know, uh, the relationship with the European Union has been very difficult in the past few years. So, of course, Brexit means also covering something which might be a path other countries might want to follow. So, yeah, there is a lot of like trying to, to bridge the gap between the, the, the wishful thinking of Italians who think like, oh, the, the, you know, a part of the government thinks, oh, finally, a country is just rebelling against the uh, big uh, European behemoth and other things, oh, we're so sorry to see them leave, just like you were mentioning, I mean, Germans before. So there is a lot of, um, try also to show that uh, if you really want to be a good Eurosceptic, Uh, there are a few mistakes you shouldn't be making. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, if you like a, a very, you know... We're, we're, will, we're the trailblazers to yes, show course, how not to do it. And yes, then other yes. countries who can follow can do it better. I think there is definitely yeah. this side of the story. Well, I mean, you'd rather make clear from the beginning what kind of uh, break up with the European Union you want, because it doesn't... I mean, I don't know how it will end, but for sure... We have a very tired prime minister. Uh, we have a very discredited parliament. I mean, I don't think he will ever be seen as a, a model of uh, like a good, a good political. Uh, I don't know how to call mission or or whatever. So there is definitely this bit. And also, See, that was really interesting because I came. We we all met a couple of weeks ago, and I came and spoke to the Foreign Press Association. Yes. The thing that really struck me was sort of real concern. I thought amongst all the foreign correspondents about. Britain losing its reputation yeah. 
and yeah. for being sort of competent and ha- you were saying a bit dull you know other yeah. European countries were the yeah. ones who were a bit crazy and everything was yeah. sort of in total chaos and Britain was sort of steady and they were the sort of ones that everyone sort of looked common to common sense common sense <laughs> exactly yeah. uh, but Brexit has changed that and yeah. you know the trouble is it's, it's, a, it's a reputation which is hard won but sort of mm-hmm. easily lost is that, is that shared across yeah. all of your countries oh definitely uh, there is just one thing I would like to tell you because maybe you didn't notice it but Silvio Berlusconi who has been quite in the news in the past decade um, on his Twitter account says that he's praying for Britain. Wow. Uh, yes. You should definitely check this is a <laughs> He says like hilarious things In a things new about low for Theresa May. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he said, I think recently he said he has a plan to reverse Brexit. Really Maybe he should morning. invite Theresa May to one of his bunga bunga parties. And that would, uh, Tim, is that the same uh, in the Netherlands that people look across to Britain and think, what will we do? What on earth? Yeah, definitely. What I find fascinating as well is if, from a political perspective, I mean, the UK was, has also been regarded by the Netherlands as a very important ally. I mean, uh, you can even see it. Margaret is someone who is always involved in talks with Theresa May when it comes to bilateral meetings, when he's been invited to Janet Street quite a, quite a number of times. So um, uh, we are, I think, also regarded, seen from London as, as an important ally. Um, and without the UK, in the EU, the, the Netherlands has to reposition itself, uh, uh, literally, because yeah. now it's just the, the German, the, like the Paris-Berlin acts, which yeah. they have to deal with. And they were actually always very happy with that, that bit uh, difficult voice coming from London, you know, not uh, to, to push uh, the brake a bit on, uh, on further integration and, and, and things like that. So uh, f- from the Dutch perspective, it's, it's like a huge loss that the UK won't be part of the EU anymore. And actually, if you look at, because, uh, in the past, uh, we had a referendum on the European Constitution in 2005, was voted against. So there is quite a bit of Euroscepticism in the Netherlands as well. But actually, because of the whole Brexit process, you could see that the support for the EU has gone up, actually. So that those voices really have been dimmed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Because everybody can see how difficult it is um, and also what it could do to your country. Well, tell you what, in a sec, I want to ask you about individual personalities, but we'll be back after this short break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast and The Times. I'm Matt Jolly, joined by Christina, Tim and Katrine. Let's talk about some of the individual personalities. So let's start with the other one. Theresa May. How is Theresa May seen in, in your various countries? Let's start with you, Katrine. I think it's quite a tricky question because in some ways, Theresa May was always seen as quite reasonable one. So whenever I criticised in some sort of commentaries or whatever, the Prime Minister, I would get very angry 
letters from readers, which is quite astonishing, I think. But then they all blame Boris Johnson and, you know, like the, <laughs> the Brexiteers um, for the mess where yeah. the Br- Britain is in. And so I'm finding that quite interesting that they are still, not all of them, but like lots of people in Germany still sort of see Theresa May as the good politician who tries to get out of this mess or to to sort of like manage the mess um, Britain is in. But but, But that also shows how far away sometimes readers or listeners or you know the audience in other countries are but also i suppose there's a sort of time lag on it because in a way she had still had that reputation in the uk probably up until before christmas and it sort of started to wobble a bit that you know maybe i mean i was telling people that two years ago she didn't know what she was doing but um they didn't listen um what about you tim what what what, what do you and your re- your viewers uh, think of what, Theresa May? i mean uh, I hear sometimes politician, Dutch politicians talk about Theresa May with quite a bit of respect and uh, saying like, wow, uh, look at what she's been through and, yeah. and all the pressure she's under and she's still doing the job, actually. And I think, I mean, uh, being a correspondent, uh, trying to speculate on what will happen to her. And I mean, I've, I've uh, sent her to the grave so many times already. I wouldn't do that anymore. But it also to- shows people in a country like the Netherlands as well, like, wow, this is astonishing. But the other side is, of course, that if you look at the political decisions she has, has been making over the last two and a half years, she just made like, quite a, lot, a number of mistakes, big mistakes. So that's the other side of the story, which is all obviously being seen in the Netherlands as well. And as Catherine mentioned, I mean, if there is any anger towards... Brexit, then it's always focused on the Brexiteers, especially. Yeah. And how far? And especially Boris Johnson, to be fair. <laughs> so it's interesting yeah. that because Boris Johnson was a backbench MP before the referendum happened. I mean, he, be- he had been London mayor. Was he known before? Yeah, yeah, so he yeah. was known because he'd been London mayor and he was sort of. It was very iconic, very easy to recognize. So then he had done the, the thing with the, uh, during the Olympic Games. It was very well known. And also, I mean, I write for a conservative newspaper, Il Foglio, and they're always like looking for someone who might you know, show the way for conservatism. And maybe at some at years ago, there was some interest for Boris Johnson because he seemed to be a guy with ideas. Then like respect for Theresa May, you know, and a lot of sympathy. But where is she really going in? political terms. Being a freelancer, I have several publications I contribute to. And a couple of weeks ago, I got a phone call from the editor of uh, the Italian edition of Elle. And they said, look, I mean, she's making a lot of mistakes, but we have to say something really nice about this girl because she's really a fighter. And so I write a piece and I, I was really thinking this. I mean, I feel a lot of sympathy for what she has been through. I think it's unbelievable that the strength, the resilience she's showing. And it's just a pity it's not coming with a stronger political vision. <laughs> yeah, her ability to keep on going is extraordinary. Her ability to not know where she's going is a is a sort of is a separate point. What about the other Brexiteers? Then I'm interested, in sort of, how far down the sort of pecking order of people that we all sort of know. You know, do you get to sort of Nigel Farage, David yeah. Davis, Michael Gove? Got Michael lo- Gove, no. no. I would say Jacob Rees-Mogg. Like, you need to have some sort of personalities, I guess. And <laughs> the crazier, the better, you know. But of course, you have Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson, very, you know. Um, and of course, Nigel Farage. And I would say, but even like, it's very tricky because you can't get, like, even, even Jeremy Hunt, do, do I would want say, it's not, yeah. you know, very, sort of like known, well known so um, you only always have a, a bunch of few politicians you can actually portray or... Because it just gets too confusing you just think, I can't, I, I found that I read, it's sort of a similar thing, I read the um, Bob Woodward book about mm-hmm. 
Donald Trump's White House. And it's so detailed with so many people. You just sort of couldn't follow it in the end because every person spoke in every meeting. And there's just sort of too many people. And it's a bit the same as that. You don't want a huge cast of characters if people are trying to follow this story from a distance. And to be fair, they're changing. Exactly. That is the other problem. They do keep changing all the time. You know, it is quite hard for a foreign journalist to interview a British politician. Among several clever things Nigel Farage did is that it was very available to the foreign press. So, I mean, I interviewed Nigel him. Farage was happy to speak to the media. Very this seems happy. so unlikely. Yes. We had no idea. <laughs> he was very happy to speak to the foreign media yeah, with, like, good yeah. one-liners, good headlines. And this gave him, um, I would say, like, yeah, uh, it was punching far above his weight. Everyone is surprised that actually he w- was never an MP, that, uh, because at some point he seemed to be, like, the official voice of... Britain it was due to the fact that they, it was so hard to interview them and it, it was always there. So it's not right. the, the British yeah. politicians still won't. I had an interview with Tony Blair the other week, um, but it take, they take months to, you know, just send him emails and emails or to his people especially. And same with ministers. I mean, probably the same with you. I never got access to any ministers or secretaries of state or... That's, I don't think they're really interested in talking to the foreign press. And I find it astonishing. I mean, if the BBC would... would try to get Mark Rutte on the programme tonight, they would get him straight away. <laughs> yeah. he, just, he knows that it's very important to show in other countries yeah. in, the, in, in Europe as well to what your opinion is, what your stance is, and also your, your visibility is, that, is important. Has that changed since Brexit? Were they more keen to speak to you before? Little only, only. Like, can you remember, Tim, like before the referendum, when the negotiations were still you know, going on with David Cameron, that's when they started only yeah, uh, to have yeah. briefings. And I was, I mean, we were always all like, all of a sudden briefings. we were invited to Downing exactly. Street. Right? And we were like, excuse yeah. me? Um, but, you know, it was, of course, they realised Oh, um, in negotiations, yeah. we are actually having with the EU and European countries. And let's face it, Angela Merkel or whoever, they're not reading the Daily Mail every day. Yeah. But they're reading our papers or watching our news. Yeah. And But it sort of stopped again. I mean, there's some briefings, but no access whatsoever. I mean, you, think, I mean we are still in very much a negotiation. You yeah, but, it, it, yeah, but it's that. such an insular thinking of the political establishment in this country. It's only going to the domestic audience yeah. all the time. So I'm sometimes not surprised at all that there's no progress at all because like, they don't talk to the EU, she, really. Which is, which is basically spending all of their time negotiating with their own party. It's well, all about negotiation with the British Parliament. And another interesting reason, I think, is that um, f- speaking a foreign language is not a really common British thing to do, you know, so we all speak English, <laughs> but there, there are hardly any, any English-speaking people in this country is reading German newspapers or, or watching French television, or, but everybody, a, a lot of people in the Netherlands read the BBC website. It's, it's it's very common, for, so it's very easy to access. So it's also very well known. And the other way around, it's I mean, no one watches the Dutch news here. In this <laughs> but that, Why isn't that they? a problem in a way? That, because the problem, they they yeah. don't even see how bad the coverage of Britain is, is yeah. and yeah. it's really astonishing sometimes how bad it became in the past years. What kind of headlines and how Britain is seen, and that is. I think it would be so good for politicians, but also for, you know, um, like all the departments to actually see what kind of damage lots of things they say or, you yeah. know, do, what, what kind of damage it does it's, to, it's so to funny, the just, country. Just, just to add quickly, because I was lucky, for example, that a few MPs had a Dutch connection. So Jess Phillips's brother apparently lives in the Netherlands. Oh, okay. so th- therefore, she's more... 
uh, willing to give an interview because then she knows her brother will see it on television. <laughs> <laughs> I find that really funny. You, yeah. you need like a massive like network. Yeah, exactly. there. yeah. they they went, to, of, went on a holiday to Germany once. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Or Nick Clegg, for example. Yeah, of course, Nick Clegg. Dutch, but also he Dutch. speaks languages, so yeah. maybe he was yeah slightly. But those less. Kind of little things are very helpful. But it's, yeah, it's just a tiny few who who really give you access. Yeah, I have to admit. Right, Christina, let's let's try another politician. Jeremy Corbyn. Does he yes. have any reach beyond Britain? There was a lot of interest. So our uh, our left uh, parties are like in state of soul searching, have been in a state of soul searching for the past 10 years. So they were at some point they were thinking, oh, maybe that's the answer to be like a Trotskyist, just the way our uncles used to be. Um, then there was a growing frustration for the fact that he didn't react. I mean, he wasn't playing the, the positive hero in the Brexit battle. So he wasn't doing what people would expect from like uh, people who think that Brexit will be reversed tomorrow. He wasn't playing the hero. Uh, I'm writing a piece about him, about his biography today. Um, no, I don't think again, like uh, looking for political models, he has been definitely. A and does it does it matter if he says something on Brexit? No. Is that sort of news? Not really. And also the other thing is that I guess, uh, at least in my country, there is a fear that he might be too too much on the left. If he was more effective than he is, it could be dangerous in a way. I think there is a little bit this bit with uh, Jeremy Corbyn, which of course makes him very sexy to far left political yeah. parties. I, th- I very much agree with you. I think the, the interesting thing was, I remember when Jeremy Corbyn became a leader and, for example, the membership let's went sky, yeah. rocket sky high. Even members of the Dutch Labour Party visited people from the, the British Labour Party to see, like, what, what are we doing wrong? Because we are just going down in the polls. We're just a minority in, in, in Dutch Parliament at the moment. So what can we learn from the move, the Labour movement made in the UK? But now things are changing because of the anti-Semitism stories, especially, and his unclear stance on Brexit. Uh, that I think that makes it really hard to read him. And is he, I mean... It is obviously very hard for any Labour leader, I think, but for him especially, being a well-known Eurosceptic for decades and now leading the party, which is well, overwhelmingly in favour of remaining in the EU, and, and he feels the need that he has to deliver on the referendum result. I mean, that, that is just a very difficult position to be in, in any, in any circumstance. But so, indeed, he's obviously uh, well-known as well. He's one of the characters Dutch people will recognise. Uh, and if... I think if you are people on the street, like how would you describe Jeremy Corbyn? It's like um, old leftish, Marxist. Uh, those kind of words will pop up immediately. I think. Was the same true in Germany? Yes, I don't do like pieces on, on Jeremy Corbyn that often. Um, like you know, I do think also that part of it and the reason is that we, like all of us, don't do so. M- much coverage just based on sound bites yeah. as it is in Britain. So I would say big part of my work is also just to leave London and go to Ireland or Northern Ireland or North of England or wherever and to do more features and more background. That's so it's not only yeah, yeah. about every day or oh, Jeremy Corbyn said this and Theresa May said that. It's, you know, I mean, of course, you kind of have to see the whole 
you know, background and the whole story. So it's, it's slightly taking a step back and looking at more long-term trends or, you know, rather than every tiny nuance. Yes, I mean, of course you can't do it. Like yeah. Britain is not the centre of the world, I'm afraid to say. What? <laughs> so it's not... <laughs> I think oh, no, you're, I I really you're fine. Say, did I really say that? <laughs> but, uh, you know, of course you wouldn't find uh, stories on, on Britain every single day yeah, of course. in the papers. So that gives you a bit more time. Before we wrap up, we should speak about your countries as well. And one of the perceptions, especially with Angela Merkel and Mark Rutte, was always that they were our closest allies in the EU and they were going to come to our rescue uh, in the end because they always do, even though they didn't really join David Cameron's renegotiation. They haven't really with that one. What is the relationship like between Theresa May and Angela Merkel? I mean, I would say there is a good relationship between Angela Merkel and Theresa May. There has always been a good relationship between Germany and Britain. And of course, for Germany, Britain as a member in the EU was, was or is very important. But then at the same time, there has been always this misunderstanding that Germany will help, help at any cost. Yeah. And Britain or British governments, I would say governments, like it's not only Theresa May, but also David Cameron, they have always underestimated how important it is for Germany to have the integrity of the single market, to have the EU as a political union, as a sign of democracy. It's like, you know, there's more to it than just business and numbers and money. The Brits never understood that. But then at the same time, the Germans never understood the Euroscepticism in this country. So I do think we are in this situation now because they both sort of, yeah, they got on with each other. They sort of like both needed each other as well. But at the end of the day, it just never really sort of... We didn't understand each other. No. We thought they'd always help us. And, and the they car thought makers, we were never going to leave. But why? Like, I mean, still till this very day, you hear German car makers. <laughs> I can't believe it anymore. And I don't really want to hear it anymore because they were right at the start very clear that it's more important to keep the EU 27 together to have a like the single market than to actually sort of help the Brits yeah. or like lobby the German government to get a great deal for Britain just to kind of sell. I mean, it's it's a lot of cars on, you know, in Britain, <laughs> but at the same time, it's only Britain. It's not the 27 and have the single market. And is the same true, Tim, of the relationship with Mark Water, who again was always, you know, David Cameron's closest ally and you know, then Theresa May try to sort of keep that relationship going? Well, I think they get along quite well. Um, and I think what I mean, the Dutch directness is probably uh, something pr- pretty helpful in these, uh, in, these, in these times. So I think uh, Margaret is also able, able to explain very clearly what the EU position is. And um, well, the Dutch are very pragmatic in this whole thing. We, we have a less of an emotional connection to the EU as the Germans have, but a very economic uh, connection to it. And indeed, the integrity of the single market is the number one priority for the Netherlands as well. I mean, the UK is our second biggest export partner, but Germany is the biggest. So, and and obviously the relationship with Berlin is therefore more important than the relationship with London. And that's always important to keep in mind if you see what Mark Rutte is doing. But he obviously wants to avoid a no deal scenario because that will be very, very damaging for for the Netherlands uh, especially. But on the other side, uh, the Netherlands is also one of the few countries who are actually really prepared for a no deal scenario. 
instead of, well, I, I wouldn't say the UK is, is not prepared <laughs> at all, but I think, I mean, there are very, uh, I mean, we, we had this uh, ridiculous Brexit monster in on the desk the of big, our... Put the big blue monster, yeah. <laughs> the blue monster on, on, on the desk of our, our foreign, uh, foreign secretary. But uh, it actually helped, again, to uh, create awareness amongst Dutch businesses that they really need to prepare. And in that week... I just looked it up uh, this morning. Uh, Eleven thousand Dutch businesses, because of the all the fuzz about this Brexit monster, and it was in the news all over again. They decided to go through a whole scanning process to prepare their business for the worst possible outcome. Um, but that's what we need. We need a big blue hairy monster. Well, maybe it works. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it tells you. That, so, it's, <laughs> from a Dutch perspective, it's really about the economics. Yeah. So, because of that whole preparation, that, that the, the building up of that No Deal preparation, the Dutch are less fearful than they were, I think, two years ago of what might happen because they had a, have a pretty good picture of what will happen. Of course, there will be damage, but they are now much better prepared than they were two years ago. And I think that's also underestimated in the UK that they think, well, um, of course, Mar- Margaret is on, on our side because he wants to avoid no deal. Yes, he wants to avoid it, but he actually prepared. He's also quite ready for it yeah. as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the thing. And just finally, in Italy... We, I mean, we've just seen in the past 24 hours Theresa May playing pool with Giuseppe Conte. This suggests that, that all is well. I mean, apart from the fact that Theresa May's clearly never seen anyone play pool or snooker or she seemed utterly bad. I mean, if she'd have got out a tennis racket and had a go at the, the cue ball, I wouldn't have been surprised. But this, this suggests some generosity, in particular, not least because the video cut out just as she hit the ball, which I assume was sort of some sort of... Way of expressing goodwill. Got even worse. Exactly, the ball probably shot off, you know, shot off and hit somebody on the head or something. But but what's the relationship? Well, like do you think with Conte? But the problem is that uh, our prime minister at the moment is not really representative of mm. the situation in Italy. So I think, I mean, they might enjoy a good time together, you know, having fun because they come from. I'm not sure you would describe what was going on there as a good time. But <laughs> <laughs> Surely more than what they, they have to endure when yeah, yeah, when yeah. back in their country, because I mean, we we are very. Again, like soul searching is probably the the term that comes to mind yeah. when I have to describe Italy. You know, a government which is mainly made of two men and one trying to to, to uh, them like think the same. So, uh, so I would say that Brexit for Italians is mainly uh, the the main concern is really the community of Italians here, which is huge. The lack of uh, details about the future. So, for us, it's really a concern about what will happen with this generation. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. We should get you back when we finally get to the end of well, when we finally get to the end of Brexit. That's it. Fifty, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fifty years time. We'll come back and see how we all got on. Um, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your episodes from. You can also sign up to my morning email. Go to thetimes.co.uk/forward/slash/redbox, where you can also get that code to get ten percent off your tickets to Podcast Live. Go to podcastlive.com uh, uh, to get tickets for that. But for now, my thanks to Tim DeWitt, Catherine Pibble and Christina Marconi. For me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. <laughs>